Welcome back to Fellows in the Field, a podcast exploring architecture at the intersection of science and humanity. This is Sam and Hannah, the research fellows at SQ Dumez Ripple. In our past episodes, we've talked about the fundamentals of sound, how we understand our surroundings through our sense of hearing, and how sound affects us. Today, we'll be talking about acoustical strategies that designers could use to create great soundscapes. This episode will be quick, but we've put together a comprehensive guide at edrpl.us with tons of strategies for designing effective acoustic environments. Uh, you should absolutely employ an acoustician when you are in spaces, specifically talking about a type of room acoustic that you're trying to achieve, be it a concert hall or even a lobby space, right, where there's a certain type of control that you're going to want, churches, anything that there's a, a specific room acoustic reverberation or control of reverberation or sustain of sound that you want to control. That's Caitlin Hunt an acoustical consultant from Kierkegaard Associates. She helped answer some of our questions. As a disclaimer, the information we discuss here shouldn't be taken as definitive solutions because each product has different needs and could likely benefit from professional consultation. Some of our coworkers wanted to know what the relationship between acoustical consultants and architects or designers should be like. When should we consult an acoustician? You should absolutely employ an acoustician when it comes to spaces that are going to be noise sensitive, meaning intruding noises are going to be a problem. If you hear the word soundproof from anybody, that's a good time to get an acoustician on board because one, there's no such thing as soundproof. And two, we're pretty used to saying that. It's probably harder for you to convince a client of that. So if you call the right place, chances are they can tell you within a 10-minute conversation of the project and whether or not it's worth them for them to even propose on the project, right? Um, in a sense that we can give you at least enough guidance that you're going to have what you need. I would say at least having that input on every project is helpful. A 10-minute conversation is quite doable and could make a difference for your work. We also wanted to know, how should architects prepare for a discussion with an acoustician? There's not necessarily a set level that we expect a client to come in with an understanding. These are very physical concepts that we are applying in the built environment. So we're very used to teaching and enjoy doing so. It's nice to hear from an architect a goal or just a vision in mind, right? And ask us, you know, here's what we're considering as a new and innovative experience and what are the acoustical implications of that. There has to be at least an understanding of what the user wants and preferably a direct communication between the acquisition and that user or even like let us write you a questionnaire, send it to them, let them fill it out and send it back to us. Okay, so it seems that it's important for an architect to have a clear vision a way to connect the acoustician to the end user, and a willingness to learn from the expertise of the consultant. Caitlin also mentioned that if architects have some knowledge about acoustics, that's even better. So that's what we're here for. Ever heard of outdoor-indoor transmission class? Well, maybe you've got acoustic chops and know what that is, or maybe you're like most of us who don't. There are many acronyms used to describe acoustics in the built environment, and it can get pretty confusing. But fear not, we've laid many of them out for you in our nifty packet of acoustics concepts. 
There you can find an explanation of Outdoor-Indoor Transmission Class, or OITC, and all sorts of others. By the way, OITC is a measure of an exterior wall's ability to block low-frequency sounds from transmitting into the building. It's like STC just for the outside. When considering different strategies, remember the ABCs of acoustics. Absorb, block, and cover. Absorption is useful for dealing with reverberation to create comfortable room acoustics, a term we talked about in our first episode. Blocking is preventing isolated sounds from transmitting to adjacent spaces, and covering is using noise to mask distracting background sounds. Let's first go over the A and the ABCs of acoustics. Absorption. This is when a soft or porous material sucks in the sound energy and helps reduce noise within a room. One of the most important concepts when considering acoustical design is reverberation time. Reverb time, or RT, or T60, or RT60, is the time it takes for a sound to die off by 60 decibels. It's hard to measure very accurately without fancy equipment, but there are some scrappy ways if you can't hire an acoustician. If you have access to a built space, first make sure it's quiet, hit record on a microphone, and then pop a balloon or clap your hands once. Bring that recording of the impulse into software like Audacity, which is free, and you can visualize how long it takes for that sound to drop off by 60 decibels. If you're designing a space and it isn't yet built, you can use the Sabine equation described in our document. It's a calculation that estimates reverb time using the room volume, surface area, and absorption coefficients of materials in that room. How do we design for a good reverb time? You can check out our handout for a list of recommended reverberation times from LEED, but also there are some rules of thumb you can follow. Here are some examples. Absorptive materials should be on the surface closest to the sound source, often people. So in a narrow space, it might be the walls, but in a wide space, it might be the floor and the ceiling. Absorptive materials that are separated from a surface will have a higher absorptive surface area. If an acoustical panel is suspended from a ceiling rather than directly mounted on it, the back of the panel can absorb sound as well as the front of it. Any absorptive materials that a sound can't see will not effectively absorb that sound. So if absorptive material is hidden behind something else, it likely won't be effective. Sound absorbing materials also should be distributed rather than clustered. And it's best if reflective surfaces are perpendicular to one another rather than parallel to prevent flutter echo. But remember, lower reverb isn't always better. When trying to improve room acoustics, how much absorptive material should we add? There isn't a definitive answer to that. It's going to depend on the use of the space and the volume of the space. You want a space to sound like what it is intended to be. So if you walked into a lobby and you didn't hear any sort of echo, you would feel a little weird. We found the following recordings on Armstrong Ceilings website. Here's a voice with a half a second reverb time. Welcome to Armstrong Ceiling Reverberation Time Test. Now, here's that same voice with a two second reverberation time. Welcome to Armstrong Ceiling Reverberation Time Test. You'll notice that the speech was much less intelligible with the longer reverberation time. Here's an orchestra with half a second reverb time. And here's the same orchestra with a two-second reverb time.
The orchestra clearly sounds more full with a longer reverb time, whereas the speech did not. So different activities and spaces require different reverb times. To help architects decide which acoustic materials might be most appropriate for their space, we've compiled a table of material families, like foam, felts, and panels, and their properties, like variations, what they're good for, NRC values, cost, and sustainability. Check it out next time you need to choose materials. Surface materiality isn't the only thing that impacts room acoustics. Room geometry, for example, can change the feeling of a space. When sound energy hits a flat, smooth surface, it bounces off the surface at the same angle from which it came. This is called specular reflection. You can draw out these reflections with what's called ray tracing and see how other shapes would distribute sound. Convex surfaces diffuse sound, while concave surfaces focus sound. This also applies to built spaces. A narrow rectangular room will reflect sound between the parallel walls, leading to echo which might negatively impact an occupant's experience. But a room that flares out towards the back reduces this issue. Speaking of user experience, who are the users? Well, the majority of people have no problem being in common sonic environments. But that's not true for everyone. A child with autism might have a real hard time in a public space. Someone with ADHD could get easily distracted in an open office and not get much work done. And your grandma with a hearing aid might not even hear you in a noisy restaurant. I work with children. Most of them have sensory processing difficulties. And that's really the ability to take information in from our, all of our sensory systems. I do have children with low threshold sensory systems where the sound of the ice maker on the refrigerator, or there is a hum that some of the lights give off. Some children have difficulties in certain environments, and we may not even be aware of why. It's just overwhelming for them. That's Sue Gotchman, an occupational therapist who works with children with special needs. And she's also my mom. So when we design, we should think about all the different types of people using a space and how we can design for diversity. Now let's touch on the B in the ABCs. Blocking. This refers to how much sound you can hear being transmitted from an adjacent space. It's important to remember that this is a separate issue from reducing noise within a space. Adding more absorptive panels often does not contribute to stopping sound transmission between spaces. Assemblies are generally rated on their ability to block sound by a rating called STC, or sound transmission coefficient. The higher the number, the more sound it blocks between spaces. A few things can be done to increase STC, such as increasing mass, like by adding more layers of gypsum wallboard, or also by decreasing stiffness. For example, switching from wood to steel studs can increase your wall assembly by a few STC points. Some other ways to boost STC are damping with something like joist tape, increasing cavity depth, and increasing cavity absorption with insulation. Check out our handout to see a few more ways to increase STC. The C in the ABCs is covering. This is usually in the form of noise masking, which is when you add to a space relatively uniform background noise, like pink noise or the sound of ocean waves. This elevates the background noise level so that isolated sounds in your space are not heard as so distinct. The words that I'm saying right now might be kind of hard to understand while you're listening to my neighbors talk right behind me. But adding noise masking can help cover that background noise and make my speech more easily understood. 
You can do this using speakers, of course, but you can also achieve this by adding physical objects that respond to the environment or make their own noise. Think water feature or rustling plants. That's it for this episode. We hope you check out our document found in the Acoustical Strategies page at edrpl.us to take a more comprehensive look at architectural acoustics. <laughs>